So yeah, Archie, you're going to get to verse 1. Um, this is the longest prelude to a chapter teaching I think I've ever done, but it's so important. And, and knowing, too, that chapter headings are not there in the original, it's a continual thought, as we've mentioned before, and, and talked about at the end of, well, at the beginning of chapter 13, it's interesting because Jesus talks about abiding in the vine. He talks about this union that we have with him, that we're the branches, he's the vine, and the father's the vine dresser and all that. And we, we've gone through that extensively. It's, but he's, it's all about the union that we have with Jesus. And as he wraps up the chapter, he begins now to introduce the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then begins to, to talk about the union that we have with the Holy Spirit. And so you see that there's a progression here. He's laying these last minute instructions out for his guys. He knows that they are going to get sideswiped. And that life is going to get hard. And just by virtue of the fact that they wear his name, Christian, that people are going to hate them and that they're going to turn against them. They're going to deliver them up. And so he's been giving these instructions and talking about this, up until now, this mysterious being called the Holy Spirit. And we've looked at the Holy Spirit the last couple of weeks, ending up with, with gifts last week. We have a little bit more to go in on that. Um, as we wrap up these attributes to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's important we understand the person of the Holy Spirit. I talked about he's a he. He's not an impersonal force. He's not an it that's kind of nebulous out there, but that he is a he. And, and that's so important because as we go through this life, it's not about how much of the Holy Spirit can I get. Come on, give me more power. Come on, I need more. I want those lightning bolts. No, it's about how much more of me does the Holy Spirit get? How much more of my heart is yielded to his work? And when I see that backwards in people's lives and I see these awful representations of the Holy Spirit out there in the media and out there in different churches, and I use the term loosely, in different groups, it grieves my heart and I know it grieves his. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is, is the ministry of, of God in the life of in the heart of every believer, and in the life and the heart of unbelievers as he comes alongside and he is with, not in, but with those people, expressing the desire of God for repentance, for people to come, to step into the kingdom, to step out of darkness, into light, out of death, and into life. The stakes are so high, and when I see people making a sham of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it frankly angers me at times, and I have to guard my heart but it's, it's just sad, it's sickening, because he is so beautiful, and he, his expression in our lives is so powerful. To cheapen that in any way is tragic. Um, so as we've been looking at that, the, the person and the work, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring Christ to us, to bring the reality of God to, into our hearts, not this external witness, but an internal witness that goes, yes, this is true, this is right, this is power, this is the ability to live, this is the ability to, to have a life that's lived above my circumstances, not thrown around by every one of them. Beautiful, fabulous, powerful ministry that the Holy Spirit brings. We talked about spiritual giftedness last week and the week before, and I was talking to Brian before the service. We were back in my office enjoying some fellowship <laughs> and talking about how, yeah, we covered the spiritual gifts like in a little over one hour and, and it's, it, you could just barely touch on these gifts. But I was so out of time and, and I know some of you guys go, eh, don't just go ahead and be out of time. But I got to be sensitive to that people have plans and stuff. I mean, after all, it's football season or whatever. But no, seriously, I, I, which doesn't affect me. I'm, I'm just not a sports guy. But the point is, is that we're out of time and I wanted to get to the main gift of the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, I'm going to, I, I, I want to just read through. I'm not going to unpack it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But I'm going to read through the end of 1 Corinthians 12 and into the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13 because there's no chapter, I mean, there's a chapter break, and chapter breaks are good because it's good for us to be able to know addresses in the Bible. We can go there. I mean, I can cite the part of that parchment that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, that scroll, because that's how they were delivered back in the first century. I can go to the portion of that that is relative to what we're talking about. So I'm not saying that those addresses are bad, but they can actually 
do a bit of a disservice in that we can compartmentalize, as Brian and I were talking about, we can compartmentalize these things as though they're isolated and they stand alone when they're part of a whole chain of thought. They're part of a, a, a continuation. And so as we look here at the, the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, I'm going to go through 13, 3, Paul writes this, he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way, 13.1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And although I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. So he's, he's using hyperbole here. What hyperbole is, is you overstate for the sake of making a point. He doesn't have all knowledge. He doesn't have all power. He doesn't work all, he, you understand what I'm saying? But what he's saying, what hyperbole says is, is he's saying, I'm saying these things. If I was the most gifted guy alive, of, of these spiritual gifts that I've just finished going through this whole list of things, if I had all of that in spades and I'm not walking in love, I'm nothing. My life amounts to nothing. My service amounts to nothing. You can serve God with a wrong heart and it doesn't impress him and you can hurt other people. That's why it's so important that we understand the greatest gift is love. What is the primary fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5? Love, manifesting in our lives as patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, all of the, the ninefold fruit there in Galatians 5. It's love. And so he's saying, this is the greatest gift. And he's essentially what he's doing is he's agreeing with what Jesus has put forth over and over here in this, the upper room discourse where he says, look, this is the greatest commandment, that you love one another the way that I've loved you. That's where he sets the bar. Is it possible? Not in your own strength. Not at all. I left him myself. I'm kind of cranky. Ask my wife. But with... <laughs> She's just staring at her. But... But seriously, I mean, and, and you know what I mean. I mean, left to ourselves, we don't have the capacity for this magnified, amplified form of love, the agape love that only the Holy Spirit can bring. It's the love of God that's shed, shed abroad in our hearts. And so what do we do with it? We give it away. You don't want to hold on to that and shut it up. That's not why he has come. He has come to be, through us, the expression of Christ to a lost world. We are the representation of Jesus on this planet. Since he left physically and came spiritually by, through the means of the Holy Spirit to bring Christ to us, it's also to bring Christ through us. And how is that accomplished? Love. Powerful love. A love that says, you're more important than me. A love that says, I'm going low because I want to lift you up. I, I went through a period of time in my business, guys. And this is just rabbit trail. Uh, but I went through a period of time in my business where, you know, we started every morning with prayer. And this is years ago. And when I had one employee, it was like, you know, well, we, we had an hour of prayer in the morning. I didn't have any problem at all paying him for that. It's like, you know, that's just part of it. We're a Christian business and we're going to represent Christ in our business. And then I hired two. And then I hired 10. And I'm going, Lord, this is getting pretty expensive. You know, and it's like, and then I've got 12. And, and it's like, come on, guys, it's time to pray. And every time I added an employee, I would say, you know, there is absolutely no requirement for you to come and pray. We're Christian business, a Christian-owned business, and we respect your right to your beliefs. We're not here to cram anything down your throat. So if you want to go wash your car, you want to go call your wife, I'll pay you from 7 till 8. We start at 8, but I'll pay you. Be here at 7, and I'll pay you for that time. No questions asked, and if anybody ever is condemning towards you, I want to hear about it because I'll probably fire them because it was not about shoving Jesus down people's throats, and we were going to honor God in our business. And so we found that balance. What I realized is that after a while, as time went on, these guys started, yeah, they'd be out kind of, okay, those 
kind of weird Christians in there in the office, you know, talking to nobody in their minds. You know, they, didn't, they were just outside of all of that. But pretty soon they'd wander in. And pretty soon they're saying, John, could you maybe pray for my kids? They're, you know, they've got the flu or whatever. And then pretty soon they're like venturing little prayers out. Pretty soon they're giving their lives to Christ. I baptized most of my employees. But my point is, is that I saw a shift in the culture in our business as these guys got on board with the Lord and the Holy Spirit came in. I would see guys that were just out. They went from being so selfish, like, no, I want the easy job today. I want the one that's close by. You're going to Fresno, which is four hours away. You know, and, you know, and all of that from kind of jockeying around to where these guys were, they were getting it. They were going low and they're like, can I help you load your truck? And I'm like, you're going to help him load his truck? You've got four hours drive. Well, I know, but he doesn't feel good. You know, and I'm seeing this whole shift in the culture. And it was because God, Christ, had gotten a hold of these guys. And the Holy Spirit was now expressing himself through them. And that was, it was such a blessing. It wasn't something I did. All I said is, we're going to pray. It was something that God did. And this culture in my, in my shop of these, these guys, they're like contractors, you know? They, they first came in, they're all just like, man, if we get rid of the foul language, it's going to be real quiet in here. But just seeing the transformation was just so amazing. And I've seen that in the church as, as a church gets a hold of these truths and, and actually applies them and walks in them. It's exciting. Uh, I see the Lord doing things in our body here that he's just brought in this wonderful peace and this unity that we, we share. And I love hearing reports of people coming in saying, you know, we're here because people love on us. I love that because he's being glorified. What are all these gifts for? They're for the glory of God. And when he is being glorified, it works, man. It is just a beautiful thing to behold. So I talked long enough, my tablet shut off. Uh, <laughs> He says, it profits me nothing. He says, if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and I give my body to be burned and sacrificed, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. And so as we look at giftedness, as you walk in the gifts that God gives, as you exercise spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and in your home and in your business affairs and all of that in your life, understand that the, the, the main earmark, the main quality of spiritual giftedness is the love of Christ in you and through you as you use those gifts. Fruitfulness. It's fruit and fullness of fruit. Fruitfulness and gifting is what he's looking for. I'm going to go through a couple more attributes of the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to race through some, some passages and take a look at it. So um, buckle your seatbelt. I am going to get to verse 1 and beyond. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about is the Holy Spirit with regard to prayer. And looking again at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, we don't pray as we ought. Uh, Romans 8, 26, it says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Very often in our house, I'll be praying as I go through the day, and um, Stacy will say, What did you say? <laughs> oh, um, uh, was praying because uh, I'm just, I, I'll be just going, and I'm not even conscious of it anymore, but I'm just going along and, and then I'll, I'll just groan or I'll, you know, something will come out and, and I'm, it's just this dialogue I'm having with the Lord and I often don't know what I'm praying, especially when I'm praying in the Spirit or I'm praying in tongues because I have that gift. We talked about that. And it's not something for a show. It's something that is a prayer language between me and the Lord. Uh, we, the Holy Spirit is absolutely involved in our prayers. He has to be central in our prayers. He is the one who directs our prayers. When we pray in Jesus' name, like Jesus has talked about many times in these chapters, we're praying through the agency of the Holy Spirit because he is the one who brings the character, the nature, the purposes of God to us via the Holy Spirit. So prayer, yes, the Holy Spirit, he directs our prayers because we're yielded to God in our prayer life, and we're saying, Lord, I don't know what to pray for in this. I, and, and he's faithful. He does direct our prayers. And we, as Christians, do well when we yield to the leading, the working of the Holy Spirit as we pray. Um, 
as I mentioned, he brings the nature, the character, the purposes, and the will of God to us. Another thing about the Holy Spirit, and and again, I've got two more that we're going to talk about, and then we'll get to the text, is koinonia. That's the Greek word. Koine Greek is the language that the New Testament was largely written in. There's some portions that are Aramaic, but uh, Koine Greek is, 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 it's street Greek. It's not classical. It's not high Greek. It's, It's like street talk for English here. Is we're way different. You talk to the average American, it's way different than you hear somebody like in a university putting, we were talking to, uh, we had a, a Chinese scholar and her daughters over to our house for Thanksgiving from George Fox, and we had a wonderful time. And she was talking about, she's a, she's a language major. She's teaching English. And she was talking about uh, learning and understanding academic English. And I'm going, mm, boy, that's way beyond me. Because I speak just kind of plain English and plain Greek, street Greek is what the, the New Testament is written of uh, in. And the word for fellowship is called koinonia. It's also the word that we use for communion. All right? So what it means is common union. There is a difference between fellowship and friendship. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with, hey, you want to go to the game with me? Or, hey, you want to come over and shoot some pool? Or, hey, whatever, you want to hang out? That's fine. And I think a lot of times we call it fellowship when it's friendship. And, and I'm, not, I'm not here to split hairs. Don't get me wrong. This is not, you know, trying to nail you down on something. But I think it's important that we understand the distinction. When Jesus said, whenever two or more of you are gathered together in my name... Character, nature, purposes, will, all of that. There am I in your midst. He's, yes, he's talking about the simplest equation of the church, yes. But what he's giving the definition of is fellowship. Fellowship is when, when we're together and we're talking and we're talking about the Lord or we're talking about what he's doing in our lives or, or something that he is he's giving us illumination from his word on or any of that. There's just that, yes, that there's that connection that you have that, that you share with one another. It's the common union. That's fellowship. It's not the same as, well, that, that ref didn't call that right. They should have gotten a touchdown. That's not fellowship. That's fun. That's friendship. And again, like I said, not saying one is bad or the other's, I mean, of course, I think that fellowship is far greater. I crave fellowship with other believers. I mean, it's far greater, but, but I'm, not, I'm not condemning friendship. I'm just saying it's different. So fellowship of the Spirit, 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 14, uh, the Apostle Paul says, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As he's closing out that letter, what he's talking about is the fellowship that you share with one another. That is the, it's the glue that binds us together. Koinonia, communion, common union, fellowship together. I love that. We were here till almost two o'clock after church last Sunday. Why? Because the body life is, is rich. We actually like being around each other. And I can't say that for a lot of churches, folks. I wish I could, but it's like, you know, you say amen and the place is empty, you know, and, and, and yet... I love hanging out and enjoying fellowship. I, I go to breakfast uh, once a week with a brother and, and we have fellowship. It's deep and it's, it's purposeful and it's rich. And I crave that. And, and I pray you do too, because that's the iron sharpening iron that the Bible talks about, that so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. That doesn't happen with fellowship as much. It definitely happens when we share that common union that we have in Christ. So I just wanted to bring that up. The last thing I want to talk about briefly here is worship. And I had, my wife found a beautiful article and I, I, frankly, I just don't have time to teach it, but I will probably coming up, it'll be part of a Sunday morning message because it was a powerful piece on what true worship is. Uh, But I do want to mention this is that uh, a question comes up when we talk about the Holy Spirit and we talk about worship, should the Holy Spirit be worshiped? He's God. When we worship God, we worship one God. And so absolutely, uh, I, I think about Deuteronomy 6 where uh, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Worshiping the Holy Spirit, worshiping in the Spirit, uh, it's one place where we can often quench the Spirit. Um, I'm going to read this. Many worship services are held, but true worship doesn't always happen. Excellent music cannot take the place of the Spirit's power in worship. Eloquent speaking cannot replace the Spirit's power in a person's heart. Worship is allowing God to take center stage in our lives no matter where we are. Real worship only happens at the Spirit level when the Holy Spirit living inside of us rises to magnify the Almighty God. Giving Him honor, the honor that is due Him and lifting up His Son, Jesus. No amount of planning, practicing, or preparing, not that those are bad things, they're essential to, to worship, to walking in that gift, but no amount of that uh, can take the place of the Spirit of God leading us into the presence of God. And folks, when we get together to worship, it's my prayer, and often I pray as we're going into worship, and sometimes I'm not even in the room, but I'm, I'm praying, uh, is that we wouldn't just see this as a sing-along or as a part of the service that we kind of come in. And again, not trying to pick at anyone, but, but there is a place in worship where we offer that as part of our service because we want people to be connected to the Lord through worship. We want people to see the value that he is worthy. If all we did when we came down here on Sunday mornings, if all we did was worship, that would be enough. And we might do that some Sunday, but it would be enough. Why? Because he is worthy, absolutely worthy of our praise. And I pray that you could just check your heart at the door and, and, and when we worship that you would enter in because you have a choice to either quench the spirit, the moving of the spirit, or you can enter in and, and, and just simply say, yes, Lord, I just love you. And I want to worship you in song. I want to worship you in, in just giving my heart to you afresh. I, I, I just ask you to cleanse me from this week. And, and, and there's a powerful amount of ministry that's going on between us and the Holy Spirit during worship. I remember a brother sent me a song a week or so ago, and, and I was trying to worship, listen to it, and I was worshiping, and I kept trying to, but I had said something that had, was, wasn't right with my wife, and, and I had to stop and, and go and ask her to forgive me before I could go back and finish on and, and continue on, because the Holy Spirit was working in my heart through the worship time. And it's a time when we just yield ourselves to him. I, I sat under a teacher one time. He said, it's, it's kind of like you yield your tender underbelly to God. I mean, you, know, you see that in that sense, but, but it's, you're vulnerable. And there's a vulnerability that comes in worship. And it's not about, hey, we're going to do this whole show and we're going to shoot glitter out of the heater ducts and all that other junk that goes on out there. It's about coming to him in sincerity and truth and saying, Lord, here am I. I just love you, and I want to worship you because you're worthy of my worship. You're worthy of my praise. You dwell within the praises of your people. That's what the Bible says. So the Holy Spirit in worship. Yes, the Holy Spirit is to be worshiped. He's part of the, the triune God that we serve, and he wants to direct our worship. From him, through him, and to him are all things. It tells us in Romans 11. The last thing here is emphasizing the experience of the worshiper as the evidence of the Spirit depreciates or takes the focus off of his more significant functions, often leading to misunderstanding, pride, and an idolatry of self rather than the worship of God. What I mean by that, folks, is we can get our eyes, we can, we can get inward with our worship. Um, I, I, I love, remember a time that a guy came to me in the last church where I was part of the pastorate, and, and he's, he said, uh, you know, I don't really like the, 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 the songs that we're doing here. And, and, and he, was, he was kind of ratcheted up a little bit. Nice guy, wonderful, yeah, wonderful friend, love him. Uh, now, I just, and yet, he, I, I watched the Holy Spirit move on this guy, because he, he said, 
you know, we need to be doing more of the old hymns. And we did, and he kind of went kind of down this laundry list of complaints that he had about the worship. And I, and I just looked at him and as lovingly as I could, I, I said, Jim, we're not doing it for you. We're doing it for him. And I watched the Holy Spirit move in this man's heart in that moment. And conviction came. We've been talking, we'll talk about that this morning. And, and, and he just went, and he started kind of stammering. He goes, well, well, how come nobody ever told me that? And I said, I don't know, brother. I, I haven't walked your walk. But I'm telling you now that we're doing it for him. And I saw his worship transformed to the glory of God. Enough said. God-focused, not self-focused worship. It, it, because when we turn that focus inward instead of upward, and, and we're, we're uh, yes, we want to be, we, our worship leaders are committed to doing a good job, to, to glorifying God. And, and I love our worship team. I love it uh, when we have the people up here. Are we the best musicians in the world? No. And I'm not saying anybody's lousy. But, but when people are leading worship, it's not about the quality. It's about the function of worship. And I love that our worship leaders are truly committed. My point is, is not, I'm not putting them down. My point is, is they're gifted and called to lead us in worship. A true worship leader is someone up there who is entering into worship and they are releasing their lives in worship and just coming to worship God. And, and that inspires us to follow along. You understand what I'm getting at? You don't, it's not about being the best. It's not about being the greatest. It's not about being seen. As a matter of fact, a good worship leader's desire is to disappear, to not be sticking out. So again, that Christ would emerge in the praises of his people. So enough said on that. Chapter 16, verse 1. <laughs> You guys never thought I'd get there, did you? The first seven verses in chapter 16 are related to the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. All right, we'll get to the Holy Spirit's work in the life of an unbeliever in verses 8 through 11. But these first seven verses are just that. It's Jesus' instruction to his men on the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it started back in 15 where he said, you know what? They're not going to like you. They're going to deliver you up. They're, they're going to be totally, and he's going to go into that more here, but he's talking about that. He closes chapter 15 with talking about the helper is going to come. He will come, and he will bear witness of me, and you'll testify of me, and, and the, there will be this union, this partnership between you as you go forward from here, because I'm leaving, but he's coming. I'm not going to leave you as orphans the Spirit of God is going to be with you. And as we get into verse 1 here in chapter 16, we read, these things I've spoken to you. What things? The Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, the, the, the helper, the Spirit of truth is what he, how he defines him at the end of chapter 15. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Now, when we look at that interesting word, the Greek word is scandalizo. Guess what word we get in English? Doesn't take rocket science. But it's to be scandalized. <gasps> Whoa, you know, did you see what that guy did? He says, I don't want you to be scandalized about this, gentlemen. People are not going to like you. Yeah, there will be those that come, those that tag on, those that come to faith. But there will be those that don't. And there is no middle ground when it comes to Christ. You either love him or you really don't want him. And we see that today, don't we? Many of us came from Thanksgiving celebrations where there were unbelievers present. I've heard a couple of reports about people who struggled because it was like, man, it's just like night and day and, and all that. But to, the, to, to be stumbled in the context that Jesus is talking about, he's saying, you've got to expect that people are going to not always be favorable towards you or your stand for Christ. You've got to expect it. Because if you don't, and, and he knew that these men would have a great deal of pressure come upon them. And, and that their faith, I mentioned before, that their faith literally could have failed 
Because up until this point, again, you guys, you've got to remember, remove the cross, remove the resurrection. This is another night to these guys. They've been going for three and a half years, and, and Jesus has just kind of knocked them off their pins and said, you know, we're, what do you mean we're not going on to set up your kingdom? Wait, 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 wait. You know, we, we've been arguing, and we argue a lot. We've been arguing about, you know, who's the greatest in the kingdom and who's going to get, you know, the, the preferential treatment, all that other stuff. And and, and Peter's, I mean, he stops cold when Jesus says, I'm leaving. And he doesn't even hear the part about love one another. Remember that in chapter 15. And, and so these guys, you've got to take the cross. You've got to take the resurrection out of it. This is coming. It's unfolding as they go. And now he's saying, in verse 2, he says, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. What does that mean? That means excommunicated. It doesn't mean, hey, would you just go away today? No, that means don't. Yeah, go away and never come back. And by the way, if you're excommunicated as a Jew from the synagogue, you're excommunicated from your community. You got nothing, uh, to use uh, our vernacular in that. You are an outcast now. And he says, they'll put you out. They'll cast you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he's doing service to God, that he offers God a service. And, and the word he uses here is lateria. And it's the same word that was used for the priests performing priestly functions at the altar in the temple. So he's saying these guys are going to literally ascribe killing you to temple rites, to temple service, to doing the right stuff for God. And we see that, don't we? We see that with Islam a lot. Uh, in, in the 20th century, it's interesting uh, communism, fascism, Nazism, the isms that were there in the 20th century, though there were a great many Christians killed for the testimony of Christ. It wasn't just the Jews. It was Christians as well. Uh, and, and, and those were major movements against Christians then. But in the 21st century, we've seen a huge rise in Islam and to where, I mean, the Coptic Christians that were killed a couple of weeks ago in Egypt, that was Islam. And don't tell me it's the religion of choice and it's a peaceable religion. It's not. And it's not just a religion. It's a, it's a form of government. It's not just a form of government. It's all-encompassing. And so we see a, a great rise in that as a source of persecution for Christians today. We also see, and very prevalent, more prevalent in our country so far, is humanism. The religion of self totally exalted. And Christianity represents anything but the exaltation of self. Christianity says, somebody's got to die, and that needs to be you. You need to die to self, that Christ would emerge. Because it's the only way that the Holy Spirit is going to be expressed in your life if that happens. And so we see this huge push, and it's in our community, folks, I see this huge push where people, organizations, groups have an agenda now to paint us as hateful because we stand up for God's word. We stand up for the truth. We stand up for, uh, we stand up for the Lord. And, and they want to brand us as hateful. Even some groups in the government want to brand us as being militant or extremist. When we're simply saying, you know what? We're sheep and we have a shepherd his name is Jesus, and he's going to rule the affairs of our lives, not you. And yeah, we're going to be subject to the government, as we should. And yet, if there's something that comes along that wants to dictate my life in a way that is going against that, well, then I've got some choices to make, and I'm going to choose to go God's way. Uh, and I'm not preaching that we need to be rebellious and that we need to be radicals and all of that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, that we serve our Lord and Master. And Jesus before Pilate said, you know what? My kingdom's not of this realm. If it were, they would overwhelm you in a heartbeat. I'm paraphrasing. And you would not be in Roman management, Pilate, if that was the case. So we do serve a king who is not of this realm. And we are pilgrims. We're sojourners. We are people. This world is not our home. And, and we do well to remember that as we stand up in a culture that wants this world to be home and in a culture that 
wants to knock us around because we wear the name of Christ. It's happening. Persecution isn't just something that happened in the first century. It's not something that just happens overseas. Yeah, we get twisted up about weird things sometimes. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about holiday cups at Starbucks. And, and we need to be careful to choose our battles. But we've got to know that these words that Jesus spoke to these men are for us as well. We've got to know that. We've got to take it to heart. We live in a world that's hostile towards Christ. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well at least for a little while longer. And oh, I look forward to the day when he comes and he wraps all of this up, when he takes us to heaven and we're celebrating the marriage feast of the Lamb and then you know, we go on from there. It's just a, a glorious time to consider. And that's our hope. Our hope's not in this dirt pile. As beautiful as it is at times and as wonderful as life can be at times, our hope's not here. And when we hang our hopes here, life will disappoint us. It will absolutely disappoint and we'll be dashed around. We will be like the house built on the sand. So we just do well to keep our perspective. That's my point. Verse three, and these things they will do to you because they have not known the father nor me. Very clear. Um, it's not about you. It's not about us. It's about Christ. And it's still about Christ. And they don't like us, not because of us, but because of him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men revile you, cast insults at you, say all manner of evil against you falsely because of me. Great is your reward in heaven. Verse 4, But these things I've told you, that when the time comes, that you remember that I told you them. Uh, these things, what does he mean? He's talking about the things that are about to happen when he leaves the scene, when he exits the scene. Again, that focus, that hatred that's been focused on him, and we've seen that over and over again, it will shift to his men because he will no longer be there physically, but through the Holy Spirit and the agency of the Holy Spirit, these men would carry the light of the gospel forward. And so the hatred would shift to them. And he's saying, I'm telling you ahead of time, expect it. Know that it's going to happen. Don't be stumbled by it. Don't be scandalized. It's the way it's going to be. And they're going to persecute you. They're even going to kill you. But they can't kill, they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. That's what the Bible tells us. And these things uh, I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So, as these things shift, it was important to Jesus that, that his men understood the stark reality. And, and he wasn't, you know, he didn't haul out a flannel graph like in Sunday school, and I'm not putting those down, but, you know, he's not saying, okay, here's you, you know, <laughs> they got little X's for eyes and all that. No, I mean, these are real things. This is stuff that's really going to impact their lives, and it would, we know from history. And, and so as that shift goes, and I remember coming to the Lord and, and coming out of the world where, you know, I was the guy in the camper going to the Doobie Brothers concert where the smoke was so thick you couldn't hardly see kind of a thing. And, you know, and then I'm going from that to, to being a Christian. And it's like, wow, what happened to my life? And I just love the Lord. And, uh, and, and my friends are you know, coming and wanting to bring on the same stuff. And I'm like, I'm just not interested anymore. I'm sorry, but... And, and I mean, it was just a stark contrast to the life that I had. And I wasn't leaving, living some, you know, off over the edge debauchery thing, I mean, but I was just living in the world and people didn't like it because light exposes darkness and people can't sit on the fence when they see the light of Christ in you. And sometimes you don't even have to open your mouth. It's the light of Christ in your life that causes offense for people. It's called the offense of the gospel. Get used to it. Don't be scandalized by it. That's Jesus' point for them and for us as well. He says, but now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, Peter and Thomas had earlier asked Jesus where he was going. So what is Jesus' point in this? Excuse me, what is his point in this? What, he's saying, none of you are asking me where you're going. Well, when they asked him, now think about this for a minute. I think this is fascinating. They, when they asked him, well, where are you going? They weren't concerned with where he was going. 
they were concerned with where they were going as a result of his going. Does that make sense? And so he's saying, you're not asking me where I'm going with any kind of a focus or, you know, um, <laughs> with, with, with any sincerity of where are you going? They're saying, what is your going away mean to me? How does that impact me? And I was thinking about this. I remembered my daughter, Jessica, um, has been in heaven for, gosh, 10 years and uh, miss her and all. And I was thinking about her as I was studying this and, and she was just really spicy growing up. That's the best way I can describe it. I mean, she was just, she had an ornery streak. <laughs> and uh, and, and her, one of her favorite things to say was, why? And I got to the point where I kind of figured it out. She really didn't want to know why, kind of like these guys. She didn't want to know why. She wanted to be able to assess whether or not my telling her it's time to clean her room was valid so she could weigh, why are you asking me to do that? It wasn't, okay, dad, I'll clean my room. Why do you want me to do that now? See, because there's a difference between why and why. Uh, very often, we don't know what God's doing. And I don't think there's any harm in saying, Lord, I don't understand these circumstances that are coming my way. Why are you doing this? Is there something you want to show me? That's, that's a why. It's not a why. Why are you doing this? What is going on? And, and it's because then, see... With one, the focus is on me. With the other, the focus is on you. And that's what Jesus is intending in this. He says, none of you is asking where I'm going. You're so preoccupied because you're grieved that you haven't gotten to the point of saying, okay, what's this all about, Jesus? Tell me, bring some illumination to this. And, and so I, I just think it's a fascinating statement that he says this when he had already been asked why twice, at least. Uh, that's what's recorded for us, probably more. Verse 6, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Again, they don't know that the cross is looming. They don't know that the resurrection's coming. They are just living this out this night, and they know he said he's going away, and they are trying to figure out what to do next. They have no idea what he's talking about. It really doesn't make a lot of sense to them. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I'll send him to you. So nevertheless, despite all of that, I'll send you the Holy Spirit. See, he knew that his withdrawal was essential in order to bring in the age that we live in where the universal presence of the Spirit, and I don't mean the universal in the sense of every person, but I mean the universal presence, not bound by time and space, where the presence of God could be with man. He knew that that was essential. They didn't. So he's saying, I understand sorrow has filled your heart, but I have to leave. And it's a huge advantage to you because I can be with each and every one of you 24-7 and not bound by time and space. I can deliver to you the oracles of God for you to deliver to this world because the Spirit will testify and you'll bear witness. That's what he said. So he's telling them this. He's unfolding this as it goes and he's trying to bring them comfort with the stark reality that he's out of here. And they're still, they're, they're, they don't understand. Um, in that the world would truly never be the same. Now, verses 8 through 11, we're going to talk about the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the world. Verse 8, And then when, uh, when he had com has come, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is the first of the threefold ministry or the threefold work of the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. So what does it mean to convict? There's two dictionary definitions for the word, and both apply here. Both apply to you and I in our Christian walk. The first is to find guilty of sin. He will convict you of sin, to be convicted of sin. I remember that first time there in an auditorium in Shady Cove, Oregon, where uh, the Holy Spirit just pierced my heart. And I just, when I responded to the gospel, it was like, Man, I just want so to be done with this life. And it was a conviction of sin. The other type of conviction is it's a deep, strong belief that one holds. I hold the conviction 
So I can be convicted and I can also hold convictions. Do you, you understand? And, it, and both of them play a part in what shapes us as believers. Now, personal convictions we have to be careful of. Okay? Um, preachers sometimes are overly anxious to define what sins are. Jesus came to deal with sin, with the nature that we inherit from Adam, because it manifests in deeds. Those are sins, plural. But God gives great latitude. He doesn't give latitude for sin, but he gives latitude for freedom. And I might hold a conviction about a certain thing that you hold a different conviction over. That doesn't mean that we divide. It doesn't mean that I have the right now as the pastor of the church to make that a doctrine. I won't. We're free. But it's freedom within a secure relationship. And there are things that make sense within that relationship and there are things that don't. And so if you know that a thing, if something is sin to you, then it's sin. If, if it's something that you exercise liberty over as a Christian, then that's something you can't. That's your own conviction. The Apostle Paul says, by the way, keep those at home because you could really be a stumbling block to other people. Like with alcohol. Uh, the word says, don't get drunk. It says, don't be filled with wine because it, you're going to just water down the Holy Spirit's work and all of that. I'm not going to make an, a, a, an announcement that we have a doctrine. There is no drinking. I am going to tell you that millions, countless lives have been totally screwed up over centuries because of that. And, and so if you hold a conviction that that's okay, you better not be getting drunk. And you better be exercising great care. Because you don't know if somebody's going to walk in the room that has had a problem with alcohol and you're there exercising your liberty and you have just totally stumbled that person. Paul says, I would never drink one more glass of wine if I knew it was going to stumble one person. So, and that's just one area of personal conviction. He leaves those up for personal conviction. But when, when you understand what personal liberties are, you know that they come with responsibility. That's the point. So when he talks about convicting the, the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, that's kind of a rabbit trail. I got, got off on that on personal convictions. What he's talking about is, is concerning sin, it speaks of Christ crucified and what he's about to do. He's coming to convict the world concerning sin because the cross is going to be the remedy for that for any who would come. When he talks about righteousness, he's talking about, he's speaking of Christ glorified because the only way that Jesus escaped the grave is because he had perfect righteousness. And that, by the way, is heaven's requirement. You don't get in with some, you have to have perfect righteousness. And that's why that being imputed to us is so important. We'll get to that. And then of judgment, it speaks of him to come. The first time he came to offer salvation. He says, I didn't come to judge the world. You're already judged. You're already condemned. I came to save it. Next time he comes, it's a whole different story. And he will judge. And he will judge the nations. And, and whoever's name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, he will judge. The judgment that we have is different. We'll get to that. So uh, looking at verse 9, he says of sin because they don't believe in me. And if you look at this, and I'm going to run over with your permission. Hey, it's our last Sunday here. We should do that. Um, <laughs> Got a few more pages, not very much, but just a few more that I want to I look at here. I really want to wrap this part up. It's really important that this all be in one study. So I want to look at the difference between our conscience and the Holy Spirit. Very important distinction, and most people don't think about it much, but I think it's really important for us to do that. Because I'll tell you what, folks, yes, there is a part of us that can have a good conscience towards God. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy, I think it's 2. But he also says in 1 Timothy 4, he talks about the man or the woman whose conscience is seared. You ever put a steak on a really hot barbecue because you want to sear it, seal in the juices? What he's talking about is that person's conscience is sealed off. It's sealed off. It ain't, nothing's getting in. And, and that's because our conscience, folks, is part of our fallen nature. And, and, and with a fallen conscience, in Romans 2.15... Paul says their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. So it really, it's like if it's left up to me, it's up for grabs. It's either 
either it's my conscience is accusing me or it's defending me and it's really not reliable. But the Holy Spirit's conviction is. So when we look at the conscience convicting of sin committed, uh, we look at this whole thing. It's, it's not reliable. It's either accusing or excusing in that sense. But the spirit convicting of sin committed, I look at Acts 2.37, where, where it says that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, when he indwelt believers and Peter got up and preached and he kept talking about this Jesus whom you crucified, it was convicting. The, the people were convicted to the core. And 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus that day because their hearts were pierced. The conviction of the Holy Spirit for sin had come upon them. So conviction concerning sin motivates us when it's the Holy Spirit. Conviction concerning sin when it's our flesh, when it's our conscience, condemns us. Totally different. Totally different. And, and it's, it's good to become more in tune with what's driving that thing in me. Is that my conscience? Or is that the Holy Spirit? Because I'll tell you what, Satan loves it when I call him Holy Spirit. And because he comes to, to lie, steal, and destroy. He comes to, to be the great imitator. He comes as an angel of light. Be careful. Verse 10 of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. It's a reference to his ascension. And the only way that, as I mentioned, that death couldn't hold him is because he had lived a perfect life. He was tempted in all ways as we are, the Bible tells us, and yet without sin. He was absolutely sinless when they put him on that cross. That was essential. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way see the kingdom of God. He goes further in the Sermon on the Mount, and I've heard this mistaught so many times that it, it's, it's, it's tough for me to get through. He's saying, unless your, your righteousness exceeds theirs, in other words, you've got to have a bunch. And then he ends that whole thing. He says, unless you're perfect as my Father in heaven is, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. What he's illustrating, folks, is two ways to God. Absolute perfection in every conceivable way for a lifetime. Ha ha. <laughs> or faith in Christ. And then his righteousness, because he goes to the Father. His righteousness, the only righteousness that heaven will see is perfect righteousness. And his righteousness is imputed to us. Beautiful doctrine, beautiful truths in the book of Romans about how now my life is dipped in the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at me, he sees me as perfect, without spot, without blemish, as whole and holy. Not only am I declared righteous, I'm declared holy. Amazing. Wonderful transactions that Jesus is about to do by going to the cross. And he's giving these guys a hint by saying the Holy Spirit will convict concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and verse 11 of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. When Jesus hung on that cross, and the last thing that he said before he committed his spirit to the Father was, it is finished, to tell us die. When he said it was finished, what he meant was, it was finished. The work of redemption for humanity was accomplished. There was nothing that we had to do but to receive it. Conscience, convic conscience convicts of judgment to come. Oh, I, yeah, I'm going to go to hell. I'll be there with all my buddies. Yeah, hey, you know, that'd be... How many of you heard that kind of stuff from people? It's like, do you realize the kind of gallows humor that you're talking about, that you're expressing? You realize the magnitude of what you're saying? No. No. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. So the conscience convicts of righteousness impossible. The spirit convicts of righteousness imputed. And of judgment, the conscience convicts of judgment to come. The spirit convicts of judgment past. The angel of death has passed over me, over you, through simple faith in Christ, 
You're simply coming and saying, Lord, you did what I could never do. Your righteousness was far beyond anything I could ever produce. Your judgment is true. Your judgments are righteous. They're holy. They're pure. And you have included me in the family of God, not based on me, but based on you. How glorious is that? And it's offered that escaping his judgment. The Romans says that before Christ, we actually store up wrath. We are incurring more wrath. More is being added to my account as I go. Thoughts, words, and deeds. How many times do I have a thought or a word or a deed? Things I think, things I say, things I do that fall short of God's holy perfection. That's really the broadest definition of sin. Nobody escapes. And then I actually incur, add wrath to my account until the point of, of acknowledging that he accomplished my redemption. And all of that is washed away. Every bit of it is gone. Past, present, future. I can't outsin the grace of God as a believer. So to look at it through the, the conscience is really, it's, 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 it's sort of agreeing with the law of God, the, the law of Moses, it, because all it did was bring, it's called the ministry of condemnation. But grace brings life. Coming to him by faith and saying, Lord, I am going to receive your grace. I'm going to walk in your grace. I, I, I want my life to count now for something. And just wash me in your grace. And, and, he, and he regenerates and he brings life through his righteousness being imputed. So convicting concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 12, he says, I, I still have many things to say to you now, but you can't bear them. However, when the, whole, the spirit of truth, he says that twice, he said that also in, at the end of 15, when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So when he talks about the spirit of truth, and that, that he will guide you into all truth, that's the second aspect of the threefold work of the Spirit. The first being convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The second is he will guide you into all truth. He will be your teacher. I remember right after I got here, I was telling Nicholas one day, I said, Nicholas, he said, that was a good sermon. I said, well, praise the Lord, but you know, I need you to know something. And, and, and he already knows, but it's just a reminder for all of, all of us. It's not about me up here talking. I said, I am a divine paper boy. I have this Great task from God to be a paper boy. I didn't write the paper. I'm just throwing it in your yard. Okay? That's the extent of my ministry. It's true. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who guides into truth. He takes the foolishness of preaching, which God ordains for some weird reason, and I, that's fine. You know, I love what I do. But he takes that, and he's the one that, by his Holy Spirit, drives it into your heart and into my heart. There's times where I get to teach, and I think, man, that was some good stuff. Because it came from him, not me. And I, I'm learning too. It's, this is wonderful the way he set it up, but he is the one that guides us into truth. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when one man won't say to another, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Why? Because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he's going to actually live inside of you is what's being implied there. Great prophecy about the advent of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit in our lives. He says you can't bear them now. We're almost done, folks. <clears throat> First, it took me forever to get to verse 1. Now you can't shut me up. Um, <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. If you're a note taker, take it down. It has to do with you can't bear them now. They couldn't bear them because the Spirit was not able at that point, not yet, almost, but not yet able to bear witness to their hearts. Uh, Paul the Apostle says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Jesus is saying, I've got more to tell you guys, but you can't bear them now. They're only things that can be borne to you by the Spirit. And so in verse 11, he says, For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? 
Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. If you understand that, praise God. That is the Holy Spirit bearing witness to you. If there's any sense in, in, in this message or when you're studying the Bible on your own or whatever it is, of that, yes, this is true. This is, stuff, this is stuff to hang on to. This is good. That's the Holy Spirit bearing witness to you. That's him guiding you into truth. That's why we can come together as a group of people from all kinds of walks of life. We are such a diverse group. But we can agree on this. Because the Holy Spirit bears witness in me and bears witness in you. And now we can have koinonia. We can have fellowship together. Verse 14, he will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. What does it mean to glorify Jesus? The Holy Spirit will glorify me, is what he says. He will shine light on me. He will illuminate me. He will illuminate and elevate Jesus. Because he takes what is his and will give it to us. And so as the third aspect of the threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit comes into play here, as Jesus teaches, this is the fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is it. This is it. We can talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit all we want. These three things are the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Oh, you mean it's not a fire tunnel? No. You mean it's not... Some guy, as I mentioned, taking off his coat and waving it across and everybody in the audience falling over? No. This is it. But there's so much beauty here. There's majesty here. There's, there's such, such depth here. Give me the depth over the hype any day. I want this. I live for this. And I pray you do too. That, that you just want to hang on the things that come from God. He says, he'll glorify, from, he'll glorify me. It's the, the third of this threefold ministry of the Spirit. I'm going to read something that a guy by the name of Henry Alford wrote. He's a, a scholar, Greek scholar. Uh, and he said, this verse is decisive against all additions and pretended revelations subsequent to and besides Christ. It is being the work of the Spirit to testify and to de declare the things of Christ, not any new thing beyond him. Isn't that good? Verse 15. And this is the last verse we're going to cover. Yay, we made it. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. And so here, as Jesus is teaching these guys on the ministry, the work of the Holy Spirit that will be taken up in their hearts, they couldn't fully understand it. They're living this out. They don't know that he's going to be on the cross tomorrow. They're, this is just unfolding. This is new stuff. And they're still spinning because they had a whole different expectation of this evening, of this night, when they sat down to do Passover with Jesus. And then he began to tell them all this kind of weird stuff. And they were just like taken back by it. And it wasn't weird to him. And it, and it wouldn't be weird to them, but, but it was new. It was, it was fresh revelation. And, and they were trying to just grasp it. And so we look at it and we see the end. We know the end and we know all of that. But I just pictured going through that, these things with Jesus that night, how that would have just kind of stripped the gears and I'm going, wait a minute. No, that just doesn't, wait, back up. What did you say? You know, and, and I mean, there would just be this, this yearning from his guys to, to just get a hold of what he's trying to say. And I think what a powerful time. This last five hours that Jesus had with his men, no longer ministering to the crowds, but just he and his men. And, and, and in that context, just he and us, as we learn the ways of the Holy Spirit, how powerful is it that God, the creator of all that is, would say, you know, I know you're weak. I know you don't have the ability to conduct even the affairs of your life without messing it up. So I'm going to take my very essence, my very spirit, God Almighty, and I'm going to put myself into your heart. I am going to come and take up residence inside of you that I could guide the course of your life. 
I won't violate your will. So one thing that's required is you have to cooperate. Because you can block it. You can grieve him. You can quench him. Please don't sin against him. And, and, and to know that you can actually, as a result, that you and I have a life that's worth living. Ministry of the Holy Spirit in the way that God intends it is the most beautiful thing that any of us, the most beautiful possession that any of us will ever have. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, just speechless. Considering all that you do for us. And we're, it was, it was based on our worthiness, forget it. That just wouldn't happen. We're so grateful that it's based on the worthiness of Christ imputed to us, given to us freely as a gift and to any who would simply come and bow the knee to you. The power to live, the power to understand what it is to experience conviction concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, to understand that you bring truth to us and and to, to know that your aim is to illuminate Christ in our lives. We're humbled by these things, Lord, and we're so grateful, eternally grateful, that you've given the Holy Spirit as a deposit on heaven, as your word says, as a down payment, as an earnest. And oh, we, we look forward to the day that blessed hope realized when we're with you. And until then, we're so grateful that you've given us your Holy Spirit to be able to live the life that you foreordained that we live. We praise you this morning, Lord, with hearts of thanksgiving. We worship you, Lord, and we're just grateful. We come before you with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.